Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show exploring the ways that tech, innovation, and entrepreneurship are creating a freer, wealthier, and more peaceful world. As always, I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and with me in the studio today are Will Duffield, the editor of Prototype, and Aaron Powell, director of Libertarianism.org. Today we're talking about the ancient practice of augury, or the predictive science of animal sacrifice. Aaron brought a turtle dove with him, and after I vivisect it, Will was going to divine the future from the patterns left by its entrails in true Greco-Roman fashion. Uh, Don't worry, no animals are actually going to be harmed in the making of this episode, but clearly the tech startup Augur didn't have historians in mind when it chose its name. Now, Aaron... Could you open this by explaining what a prediction market is, what Augur in particular is doing, um, and what your experience with it was like? Because I think you actually bought um, a, 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 a – you placed the bet on Augur, am I right? So a prediction market is simply that. It's a, it's a way for people to create a market in bets on various occurrences. So we might have the the one that I placed a bet on was whether the Congress would confirm Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee by a certain date. And so you get to so I can bet either yes or no and other people can bet yes or no and you put a little bit of money on it. Um, and and the amount it costs to buy a yes or a no is a factor of what people are willing to pay for that, so you get you get like basically a stock market style effect, uh, and and with this you can kind of get at what the community thinks is the likelihood of a certain event occurring, how strongly they feel it will occur based on like how much money they're willing to put into it, and the data we have going back is that prediction markets can often be fairly accurate predictors of what is actually going to happen. They have a decent track record of making accurate predictions and potentially a more a better track record than just individuals guessing. Because guessing is costless. Um, we don't suffer any personal penalty when we guess wrongly. And in fact, most people don't remember when we've guessed wrongly, so there isn't usually an accompanying reputational penalty. However, In a prediction market, you're putting your money where your mouth is when it comes to this potential future world state. Right. And so it's it's a way to aggregate knowledge that people might have and and how strongly they feel about this and how much they're willing to kind of put their skin in the game on it. So Augur is simply a another prediction market, and there have been prediction markets. What sets Augur apart is that most Prediction markets until now have been centralized, so that a company runs them the the same way that you know ESPN runs fantasy football leagues. the The result is that there you can regulate them. The government can regulate them, and so the governments have set all sorts of rules because this looks like gambling. Um, there are certain things that it's okay according to the state to gamble on. Other things it's not. They don't. They want to limit it so that people don't. You know lose their shirts. And so the the prediction markets that we've had frequently have limits that have the effect of them limiting their ability to really get at what the market seems to know. So one of the obvious ones is there'll be caps on how much 
you can bet. Or whole sectors that are walled off. We can't bet on politics in the United States,、sure. for instance, which then limits the ability to use prediction markets to predict who will win elections. Right. So when the when the presidential election, there's a terrific site called electionbettingodds.com that aggregates. Prediction markets on various political things, and so in the run-up to the election, you could watch like what the prediction market said was the likelihood of Trump or Hillary winning or congressional races. But all of that was based on markets I believe were in the UK. Yes, there because it wasn't illegal there. It's、uh, you can walk into any betting parlor, and just as you would bet on sports, you can bet on politics. You usually get kind of a weird look as the one nerd in there betting on American elections. But、um, so Augur attempts、easy. to use the. Decentralization enabled by the blockchain to get around that problem because it can create a decentralized betting market that can't be censored, that can't be regulated because there isn't any central service that the state can go to and punish, and that everyone who is participating in the market can do so anonymously or pseudonymously. So Augur is what's called a D app, and a D app is basically, if you think about a standard. Centralized application, as you have, when you know when you go to Facebook, there's a front end that you're seeing, and that that front end, which is a whole bunch of code that makes the you know the Facebook news feed appear in your browser and processes when you click on things and when you type in posts, that front end is behind the scenes interacting with the back end. It's interacting with a a database、um, that is also hosted by. Facebook and that database is then what contains all of the information that's in Facebook, the content of your posts, and you know what you've liked, and all of the creepy stuff that Facebook knows about us. A D app says, okay, we're going to still have a front end, and the front end will be hosted on someone's server, but that back end, that database, is lives in the blockchain and other decentralized. Solutions. So it might be it's it's information written to the blockchain plus like all of the you know the the heavy lifting information, the stuff that actually takes up, would take up a lot of space and would clog up you know the amount the limited bandwidth. The blockchain is stored in decentralized file stores like IPFS or Swarm or something of that sort that's spread out all over. And and what makes what really sets these apart is that. Because you've separated, you've decentralized the backend, you've decentralized the data store. Anyone can write their own frontend to that data, just like anyone can write their own wallet to interact with the Bitcoin blockchain.、Right. And so, Augur is right now. Augur is a frontend that's run on Augur.com or whatever the domain name is. That is an interface to the Augur blockchain. Which is part of the Ethereum blockchain, as a set of smart contracts, as you know, and other other data stored there. So when you make you make a bet on Augur, you are basically creating a you're you're contributing Ethereum tokens into a smart contract on the blockchain that says if such and such event happens, I will you know my Ethereum tokens I'll either get back a certain amount, I'll get back some from the other people who bet the wrong way, or mine will go to other people. But that's all written into like a publicly available contract spread out across all the Ethereum nodes. And from a liability perspective, I assume that third parties creating front ends for this database wouldn't be held liable for. Perhaps what their users, how their users use that front end to interact with the underlying decentralized database. That's a good question. 
Uh, and I wonder if that's one that you know will come up as we get into the specific issues that we have to talk about today that that are relatively novel because that's not a question that would necessarily have come up with the the standard centralized where both the front and the back end were. Yeah, you're pretty clearly liable in that sort of situation because it's your cohesive whole entity. Well, and you have the uncertainty introduced by the kind of weakening of Section 230 of the Communications Act, where now, you know, traditionally since the mid 90s, uh, uh, hosts were not held liable for content posted on there by a third party user. Um, that's now been weakened, right? That we, well, only now. with regard to promotion of prostitution. Um, so I, I don't see a whole lot of overlap here, though perhaps well, someone could the, come up with a novel uh, but the legal precedent, prediction. Though. So someone could say, well, because we as a, as, a, as a law system, we've decided that it's okay to hold liable a host, a, a front end or a back end host for content posted by a third-party user that has to do with the solicitation of prostitutes um, and the sex trafficking. Therefore, we can also prohibit these other kinds of posts and behaviors. And well, if they were to pass another law, but um, not as a matter of legal precedent, no. Well, well, we'll see. But So the question then is whether um, Augur, with its front-end control over access to the back-end, um, whether or not you know, it's trying to create a cutout so that individual users um, can bet on all kinds of things that uh, uh, that regulators or that law enforcement would find unsavory. Um, this is an introduction to some of the, uh, I think, some of the early reporting after Augur was launched. There was a lot of attention around the fact that people had placed bets on whether or not. Uh, unpopular politicians or Supreme Court members would be uh, dead by a certain point. And this was thought of as an assassination market. Um, this is the kind of behavior that make law enforcement uneasy. Um, but, you know, Augur could ostensibly say, look, that's we're not in control of that, right? That the back end data, we, you know, on the front end, we can choose whether or not, and there are some, uh, there was some discussion about whether or not they were allowing those bets on um, basically assassination bets, how easier they were making it for users to access the bet itself, but they couldn't actually shut down the bet. It still exists. They could. So my understanding is they could at the very beginning. So when it first launched out of beta a couple of months ago, uh, that they had they owned the original key, the original wallet address that would that had control over the the whole of the smart contract. And so they could they could go in and they could modify things or they could shut stuff down or they could censor they could act as censors. But a couple of weeks, I believe, after they launched, and this was something they had planned, so they you know you you maintain control of that until you make sure that everything is up and running and correctly because it it enables you to make changes and to fix things. But once they you know a couple of weeks later, once they're comfortable that it's actually all working and out in the wild, they transferred ownership of that to like a dummy address that no one had access to. And so now it just lives on its own and the people who created it have as little control over where it goes as any of us in this room do. So at this point now, they don't have control over access to... There's the question of front-end accessibility, but obviously, even if the creators with regard to their front-end application removed certain bets or removed the ability to view or access certain bets, 
other third-party front-end creators could allow their users to access those bets. Right. So, so this this would be similar to if if Twitter ran this way. Um, so if all of your tweets were stored in smart contracts on the blockchain instead of in Twitter's servers and Twitter were a true dApp, Twitter.com might have all sorts of restrictions. So it might prevent you from tweeting things with certain keywords. Uh, it might have restrictions on what you could see. So if you searched for certain terms, it might institute its own ban or block lists. But all of that data is still there in this smart contract. So someone else could come around totally independent of Twitter and write twitter2.com. They could have a completely different set of rules right. and could access whatever they wanted. So at this point, there could be auger knockoffs that provide different front-end services but have access to the same back-end data uh, in, it, it just in case Augur tried to, to do something like that. Um, so, OK. So in a sense, it doesn't matter what happens to Augur as a front-end provider at this point in time. I mean like the data is there. The contracts are self-executing. Someone could come along and create a an alternative that provide the same kind of front-end service. Um, which is probably a good thing because uh, as we were prepping for the show, there's been a lot of buzz since Augur launched about the viability of that particular front-end service. Um, uh, one of the things I think, Will, you found was how relatively few people were using the service. Can you explain a little bit of that for us? Yeah. So in order for prediction markets to function as you would intend them to um, – being able to draw upon the wisdom of the crowd as a whole, you need to some extent a crowd. If you have a very small number of users betting on some set of futures, uh, you're unlikely to be tapping into the breadth of knowledge that you would hope to access um, through this. So you do see a kind of liquidity crunch here and particularly with regard to Augur, the Augur protocol in terms of its valuation derived from its set of tokens seems wildly out of step with both the number of users and the amount of money being bet on futures within Augur. So these, um, these tokens, just to clarify, so when you place a bet on Augur, you are betting with Ethereum tokens with that cryptocurrency. But Augur has its own token that functions more in a reputation role. So you you acquire these by using it, by being on the right side of bets. Um, and, and the tokens are – I believe the main function of the token is – one of the problems that you run into with a betting market is how do you decide which side won? Um, and so you, you tie it to an oracle, which is the, the thing that's going to decide. But, but that might be contestable. And um, and so these these reputation tokens enable the community to interact with which side won, whether it was right or wrong, and and so if you if you like contest, I believe if you contest something um, and are proven to be right, you gain these tokens, which then give you more authority at a later thing. And so Augur did a initial coin offering that you can buy these tokens, and these tokens have a trading value. Um, and so that's what this the, – the outstanding value of the Augur tokens. And at the moment, those tokens in sum are valued at about $300 million and yet Augur only has 
64 daily active users, according to a Coindesk article. And, and I went on and checked today, and it was uh, 45 active users. So then, I think pretty consistently in that in that range. And they, for to clarify, the way they're using these the the count of this active users is they are looking at. So when you you interact with Augur by having an Ethereum wallet that you sign into it with, it has your unique address. And when you place a bet, either buy or sell bets on the Augur into the Augur blockchain, those are marked with those transactions are marked with your address. And so the way that these numbers of how many unique daily users is they simply count the number of unique addresses that made a transaction with Augur each day. So it's possible there's many more people who are logging in to check or look at things but aren't actually making trades. That's a that's a, a good caveat to point out. Um, but it still looks to be a fairly thin market at the moment. Given the total you know, right. If there's only 45 value. trades happening a day and that's not in a single market but that's across every <laughs> possible. So from my will, the Supreme Court nominee get confirmed to who's going to win the next presidency to who's going to win the Super Bowl. That means that the vast majority of these things are not getting even a single one each day. And at least compared to other prediction markets I've participated in the past, in this case, Good Judgment Project, there I saw most or many users updating many of their predictions on a weekly, if not daily, basis in light of both new information and the shifting price of these futures. And when you don't have uh, numbers, when you don't have a certain critical mass, it becomes that, especially with a proof-of-stake system like like either, um, as opposed to a proof-of-work system like Bitcoin, and that, that's a whole other conversation. But the proof-of-stake system, which is what this reporters is what they call them, people who um, have some of the um, uh, auger tokens who who bought a certain amount and who earned them and use them and get rewarded like reporter status. They're the ones who act as a check on like to solving the oracle problem. They're the ones who kind of police the community in a sense. If you don't have a certain number of people, all the number of reporters who it takes to throw a result is consequently quite low. Um, so it's easier to monkey around with the results. There's a there's not only wisdom in crowds. There's safety in numbers uh, for a system like Augur. So it is a real issue. Um, I'm still not 100% convinced. As Aaron, you brought up with the um, Oracle problem, this has been an issue for uh, prediction markets before. Um, the most famous example is that I could think of was Intrade, uh, which was a predecessor of Augur shutdown. I don't know, three, four, five years ago. Uh, but one of the founders of Intrade actually is uh, was in, is one of the execs of Augur. So there's like a filial connection. But back in 2012, uh, there was the Republican caucus in Iowa, and it was a it was an unusual situation, sure. Uh, but Mitt Romney was declared the winner by eight votes, eight delegates in the Iowa caucuses, um, or kind of throw the Iowa Iowa caucus uh, to Mitt Romney. Uh, and so Intrade pays out and says, look, the people who bet that Romney would win, they get their payout. But a few days later, and the, and the rules had stipulated that there would be no recount. So if there was a recount, too bad. Whatever the initial count was, was good. But a few days later, they found that, oh, uh, during the basic certification process, so not a recount, 
we we just basically tallied the numbers wrong and actually Rick Santorum won. So understandably, people who bet on Rick Santorum said, hey, wait a second, like we should have won this. It didn't violate the no recount rule. What gives guys? And Intrade had to say, sorry, tough luck. Like our Oracle system just didn't work in this case. And so that's 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 an issue. That really is, especially when you have a small user pool like this, when um, you can't necessarily rely on your reporter system to fairly adjudicate this system. I, I think that's a problem for Augur specifically. And it's still something that's always going to linger. I mean, it's not necessarily an insuperable problem, but for prediction markets in general, figuring out who gets to decide who wins the bet matters, um, particularly in, in complicated situations. So it's one thing when you say, hey, the who wins the presidency, that's a that's an easy thing to 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 you know the, the the top we want the paper record and the whatever the CBS and that New York Times says one the day after at this time of day that's who wins, but when it's something a little more nuanced like let's say I've predicted that Donald Trump will will not live finish out his term kind of an implicit assassination bet um, or impeachment bet uh, or you do that for any other individual person that person fakes their death. Well, right? Like th- this is a scenario that really becomes a real issue for assassination markets. People who – or someone spreads a, a rumor on Twitter that gets reported on as someone like, – like these things aren't reversible once you've written it in the contract. I mean there's ways of gaming this system, of playing with an Oracle uh, Oracle system that is problematic for prediction markets. Will, you look like you had something to – Oh, I mean we, we keep coming back to this question of assassination markets – particularly within Augur, given that someone put one up. Um, And the reason that assassination markets have always been a concern when it comes to any kind of prediction market is because it, if you can, it is unlikely that anyone but the assassin can correctly predict when someone is going to die. Um, we usually don't have a whole lot of advanced warning as to our deaths or the deaths of others. And within the general market for assassinations, um, because assassinations are illegal, it can often be difficult to coordinate that payout. However, if you have an open prediction market and everyone can step in to bet on someone's potential time of death, the assassin is likely to be the only one who gets it right and therefore the one who wins the payout such that the prediction payout can function as a payment for services rendered. But there, there, is, social, there is utility in that. We should, I mean, we should point out before we talk about assassinations, which is – so let's say you're trying to figure out which – the, the balance of power on the Supreme Court. So you want the most accurate possible prediction of when Supreme Court justices who hold their offices for life or until resignation um, are likely to shuffle off this mortal coil and so that, you know, which party will get to pick a replacement. Like there is political value in that and there is thus social value in good, the best possible prediction of when they are likely to live. So it's even if it's ghoulish to talk about betting on the date of someone's death, there's value in this and we, we already do it. I mean the political pro- prognosticators will always say, well, Clarence Thomas is this number of years old and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 
this number of years old, we think they'll probably live this long. We're already doing that, but prediction markets offer the possibility of doing that even more accurately. So that's at the outset. There is social utility in this, and it's not merely uh, an assassination market, even though that's kind of the uh, hyperbolic way of, of of framing it. At the same time, you've just always heard this complaint or concern when it comes to any sort of prediction market. Back in let's say two thousand three, maybe six, the Pentagon set up their own internal prediction market. Um, in order to better estimate the time and location of terror attacks. Of course, this was then billed or presented by some as a, a ghoulish um, endeavor such that it was rather quickly shut down, even though using the wisdom of crowds in order to better understand when terror attacks are likely to happen could help to save thousands, if not more, lives. Um, but it, it's a kind of constant refrain that has dogged this uh, useful means of knowledge dissemination. Because it, it looks like you're cheapening the whole thing. Yes. You're turning you know, matters of life and death in this case into you know, going to the craps table. And making things. money on it. <laughs> and making money. There's a yeah, profiteering yeah. complaint. Well, and, and it's a reminder that a lot of stuff that we recognize that are now quite respectable forms of prediction markets uh, – you were once illegal. I mean, so the stock market, literally the, the market. That, well, it, you know, interest, you taking interest was was illegal under, you know, kind of Catholic ecclesiological law. But um, it was also frowned upon as gambling. It was okay to have shares mm. of a company. Like if, at some point we agreed, okay, we'll split share companies in the shares. The corporation is okay. But the idea that you would then trade shares in a company with strangers who weren't whose only connection to that company was through a piece of paper and didn't, like that was considered no better than gambling. And over time, we've developed as a society, society to the point where we say, no, actually, that's a good thing. It was once unimaginable, but now it's good. Um, and the same thing kind of has to happen with non-financial related prediction markets. Well, and, and like financial markets, when you know, trading and the stock of or ownership of joint stock trading companies first appeared on the scene, um, it often did look a lot like gambling. Um, you didn't – there wasn't a great societal understanding of how this helped these firms to make better decisions in the future, how it helped other market actors to understand the value of these firms. Um, and in time, we've come to recognize the importance of stock markets in doing that. But but now we get back to the the problem of legitimate assassination markets, mm. like the, mm. we are actually yeah. um, because prior to a fully decentralized system like this, it was harder to get these things off the ground. You know, I mean, if it's a centralized system, then when when in trade puts up, will someone assassinate this world leader by this date? Uh, it, you know, the government can knock on the door and say, "Hey, you know, you got you got to knock that off," um, or it can get at the the registration information of the people who are betting one way or another, which might end up being a useful suspect list. 
but when you've got a a fully decentralized this is you know living on the blockchain no one can no one can shut it down no one can censor it everyone who's participating in it is participating simply as an ethereum wallet address that they could have set up on the fly so there's no way to trace that to a specific person or it's you know it's awfully hard to do then you can't i mean the the, the assassination the state agents can watch this thing go and they can see, you know, maybe the, the the likelihood keep going up, or someone wins, and the person was actually, and there's absolutely nothing yeah. that they can do about it. Yeah. Well, and there, the prospect for this was imagined a lot longer ago than than I realized. Um, there was a fellow named Jim Bell who's a crypto anarchist. Um, they called him a cipher anarchist back in the '90s. Was the the term? And he, he, he cypherpunk. Cypherpunks. Yeah. Right. Um, and he wrote an article called Assassination Politics. And it's actually quite prescient when you read it now, um, back in 1997. And he talked about using digital cash. And at the time, people were starting to think about the idea of something that looks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. But it was still all kind of in the theoretical stage. But using digital cash and his scenario was that, hey, you're sitting down watching the evening news and you hear about you know, the corrupt – Local county sheriff um, uh, did something you don't approve of. They, I don't know. They they shot an unarmed black man, or they uh, barged into someone's house and and killed their dog uh, on a, during a no knock raid, or or whatever. Right, some kind of corruption or crime being committed by local authorities. And rather than just fuming at the television, um, ordinary citizens could say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to pitch in the dollar of this digital cash." Uh, for a prediction of their end of life coming in the near future. And you only need a few thousand people. The number he put in the article was uh, 0.01% of the population to put a $250,000 bounty on someone's head. Um, so that prospect, Bell was very excited about as a, as a cypher anarchist. He thought, here, we'll make politicians more honest that if they do something that only 0.01% of the people are concerned about, uh, they'll have big bounties on their heads from from people who are buying into these kind of uh, assassination that markets. terrible. 0.1% of the population is probably insane or just horrifically wrong about yes. any well, issue at any time. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he met QAnon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, probably 0.1% of the population believes in that. It's the kind of thing that only made sense pre-social media and pre-Twitter. Now it's like you can get 0.01% of, of people to say incredibly crazy things. Um, or you know his more fantastical imagining was that you wouldn't need a military because you could basically just use assassination contracts to control. So lots of utopian kind of visions around this. But what's um, kind of prescient about it is the idea of people placing bets, um, in particular acting in the kind of assassination market using digital cash all the way back in the 1990s. Um, Bell himself ends up in tax fraud and he ends up in jail and such. But um, – what, what's interesting here is that like, OK, we're 20 years on from Bell writing this this series of articles that was very influential in this, the, the exact community out of which comes the cryptocurrency community. Cypherpunks are the source. Um, it's people like – anyways, I won't, I won't run down the list. But it is from this community that we get our things like Augur eventually emerging. Take Jim Bell as emblematic of 90s cypherpunk culture either. Um, 
well, I mean, we could argue about the specific um, influence of Jim Bell, but he was definitely a member of, of the community that was well well read and regarded by the kind of anarchist community at the time. Not that everyone would have agreed with him or that he's representative in some way. Um, but the thing is, is we're 20 years on. We have digital cash. We have public encryption. We have all the stuff that Bell predicted would be in common usage to the point where it would essentially get rid of national militaries and control our political system. And by no measure of auger are we anywhere close. I mean, the the prediction market for the you know the the assassination bet that was placed on Donald Trump, I, I went and tracked it down. It's about fifty shares at point zero one five at either, which is like five hundred dollars at stake. This is a far cry from Bell's imagining 20 years ago. So how come even though we have all the tools he predicted, and in fact even more than he predicted, do we not see this happening? Uh, well, the first one would be um, nobody's using Augur. So I mean it, my <laughs> guess is that, that that particular market is not a, necessarily an outlier, that most yeah. of the markets, even the totally legitimate of who's going to win the next Super Bowl, probably have similar total numbers. Um, but But the other one is – I mean – so this is this is a real concern, and it's a concern from the libertopia perspective because on its on its face, like we as libertarians think, you know what what these things are these these crypto based markets and you know the, what the the encryption and the communications and all of that and the the lowering of transaction costs and um, it's it's opening up markets, right? It's it's allowing markets to flourish where they could have been restricted before. Yay! Like that's awesome from a libertarian perspective. But the fact is that people will do bad things in markets. People do glorious things in markets, and probably you know the overwhelming majority of what happens when you free up markets is glorious. But people will still do bad things, and and the concern specifically with this. Is so bracket the question of Augur itself not having very many users right, right, because right, right. we can imagine that it, it could you know it something could happen and it could spike or some other one could come along and it could do very well and it's likely that these kinds of decentralized prediction markets will at some time in the future have uh, a lot of users. Is that this particular sort of bad behavior, namely markets and assassinations, uh, people respond to incentives. Markets can create incentives that people then respond to. And so even if you don't have a you know part of it might be that just there's not that many ghoulish people out there you know there's not that many people who want to assassinate people but but if you start betting all it takes is that to incentivize one person to go out and try to kill someone I also think for anyone important enough to end up with a, a crowdfunded hit out on them the would-be assassin probably won't live long enough to spend their winnings. I, I, I could be wrong there, but it just seems as though there's a kind of importance threshold that you would need to pass. And obviously, I'm looking at what is now a pretty limited market. If this sort of thing were ubiquitous in our society, I might think of it differently. Um, but that in in passing that, you're you're there in you know the feds will get you territory. Well, there is here I think um, we, we you we mentioned it briefly earlier, but with the uh, SESTA FOSTA fight online sex trafficking legislation, it's a related question, which is um, 
advocates of the of the law were concerned that people were openly advertising for prostitution in such a way that they were essentially advertising sex trafficking. So by having websites like Backpage.com where prostitutes advertise their services, we were fomenting sex trafficking. So we shut that down. Congress shut that down. And um, critics have pointed out, well, if you shut that down, you're just – you're putting – those services aren't going to go away. They're going on the black market. In fact, there's early signs. Uh, Mike Masnick on TechDirt has highlighted some of this stuff. There's early signs. It's made it harder to catch sex traffickers because they're now on the black market and underground. So the same argu- argument could be made here, which is that it's not like there is not already a market in assassinations. There is. People hire hitmen to, to kill spouses and – Yeah, but co- competence matters here in a way that it frankly – doesn't when it comes to sex work. Um, you aren't concerned about sex work being more <laughs> open because you'll attract more competent sex workers when it comes to assassins. That's very much a concern. But all it takes with an assassin is one competent assassin. And I think this is where you get, you get an interesting effect and a potentially troubling effect of these kinds of markets because you – so take the philosopher Derek Parfit had this this thought experiment about harmless torturers where you know we i might do something that causes no i you know i push a button or i you know in some way like do something to someone else that causes them absolutely no harm it's utterly harmless right um and they might not even be aware of it and you know there's we can we basically cut out everything that might make my action morally problematic but if lots and lots of people do it at the same time, it has the effect of torturing this person. You know, so you're maybe pushing a button that puts a you know minuscule amount of electricity into them or something, but in the aggregate, it causes them great pain. And what's the moral status of this? And with a, a market like this, so it a standard assassination, right? You have you don't have a whole bunch of harmless torturers. What you have is like one person who has to really, really care and really want to see this person dead because they're going to pony up, you know, two hundred fifty thousand or whatever it costs. And then you have one person. Then you have to find one person who's willing to do it for that. And and you have to be not only really committed but really aware of what you're doing to pony up that amount of money. Whereas with this, it's you know, the, the participating in a little market, like, oh, do I think this person's going to die by a certain date? Sure, I'll I'll pitch in a buck. It doesn't, you know, um, the the kind of moral distance is much greater, and so, but it's still all it takes is one person willing to do it for that amount of money, um, and and now it happens, and so we can become kind of participants in greater evils without really realizing what we're doing. I mean, this makes me think of there was a few years back there was a tech that also didn't go anywhere but but presaged a fairly troubling future called I think dark leaks mm-hmm. where dark leaks was you know you've got the WikiLeaks model of people could send stolen documents to WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks will then put them out into the world but there's no there's no economic model there um, that what dark leaks did was it would allow let's say I stole a whole bunch of data from I mean, you know a government contractor, I stole a whole bunch of data, and I want to get paid for it. it. It allowed me to mathematically prove that I had that data by basically releasing small pieces of it that people could verify, um, and then set a threshold so people you basically Kickstarter the release of this. People contribute Bitcoin to something, and then win. The threshold is met. Enough people have contributed. The documents, the rest of the documents that I have get released 
into the world automatically. Um, and so you end up creating markets in stolen documents that anyone can participate in for a little bit of money. But everyone which, gets them at the end. But everyone it's not gets just them. Some buyer. Sure, but the so but the seller you now incentivize sellers, right? So you you end up in a world where you can, in this fairly anonymous way, sell stolen secrets to a global audience, and we all like you know. Sure, I'd like to know what the NSA is up to. I'd like to know what this company's up to. So I'll pitch in a buck here or there. Um, whereas you wouldn't be willing to spend thousands of dollars of your own money I, I to think pay. Compared to like insider trading, for instance, the main complaint there is fairness. Um, that you know, yes, it probably drives us towards a more efficient market. But because only some are getting access to this extra information, it's unfair and therefore should be prohibited. But with regard to this, I don't know. From an efficient market perspective, it just seems like a good thing. But the pro but, but a world in which everyone was incentivized to sell secrets and had an easy way to do it at all times might be a might have economic consequences we can think of. It's one thing if it's Edward Snowden selling NSA documents, but if it's, you know, every every corporation constantly has to worry about every employee selling everything that they've got, their trade secrets, their, you know, upcoming product info, that could have disastrous economic impacts. Um, or but these are these are the things is that the the problem, one potential problem with these new kinds of markets, especially these new decentralized, like D app based markets, is that once they're out in the world, there's nothing you can do about them. And and so Augur is now out in the world and not only can't it be shut down, but it can't really be modified either anymore. So you can't say, oh, we're going to try to adjust the incentives because it's it's open to everyone. And so I think that's a that's a real concern. Um I don't think it's a strong enough concern to say like, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't allow these things because any new tech is going to have problems. But but it is something when we're thinking through. I mean, what, the hard thing to do when you introduce a change is to imagine all of its effects, and and it counsels us, I think, at least to say um, we can imagine all sorts of positive effects, but we should also think of the ways that people are going to use this to do bad things. Right. Well, it's 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 not unlike another technology that actually you know uh, the cypherpunks and Jim Bell mentioned encryption, right? It, it, unbreakable, um, easily accessible. Encryption. That was something that was being thought of 20 years ago that is now generally available um, and something that annoys the state to a great extent, right, which is why they want built-in backdoors into systems, et cetera. And there's that arms race between um, uh, consumer goods companies and, and the government. But while we as libertarians typically say this is great, encryption provides – uh, privacy. It, it, it allows people to uh, gather without fear of surveillance. We do also acknowledge there are, you know, there are people who are going to use that for nefarious ends. But what we ultimately say is the net there's net benefit to this technology. That yes, there are going to be bad actors who use encryption to plan terrorist attacks, etc. Um, but those are going to be the isolated cases that on the net. Society benefits from from privacy, from uh, freedom from intrusion that's provided by this encrypted system. The same thing true here with prediction markets. Did you have something you wanted to add, Will? Well, I guess uh, getting back to the question of why we don't see a higher higher user numbers for both Augur, but you know this liquidity issue has plagued all sorts of prediction markets for as long as people have tried to set them up, and. Uh, why is that? Um, 
I think to some extent for most of the things you see, most of the futures you see traded, um, there are other much larger markets with proxies for these futures in them. Um, you know the the stock market, and if you know, you know you may have a prediction market question as to whether the United States will go to war somewhere, or even if Honda will ship X number of cars by next year. But if you really want to make, you feel you have the right prediction, and you really want to make a lot of money on it, you're in most cases better just going to the stock market and either you know shorting the state industries in the country you think will get invaded or buying a bunch of Defense Honda stock or, if you think yeah. that they're going to ship the number of cars and that those are just more profitable analogs for the specific question in these markets. Um, That's I, I don't know what other suggestions we have there but you know it might speak to you know we've we've pretty good markets and things now um well, it's kind of an argument against the idea of this it's not to say that there isn't there aren't interesting things going on with prediction markets in general there are with auger specifically however the company uh in this particular company pans out but that this isn't as radical as people might assume. Well, it's right? nice like, to get a, a clearly phrased, like well-constructed yes or no answer to some question you've posed. But if you dig into how people are behaving in real markets all over the world, you can often find the crowd's wisdom as to that question already. Well, thanks, guys. I think uh, I can predict that our episode is going to end in the next couple of seconds. So thank you for coming on. And uh, until next week, be well. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy our show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn about Building Tomorrow or to discover other great podcasts, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.